Hello, I'm Lina Khmudo. Welcome to Health Chat. The World Health Organization reported recently that weekly cases of COVID-19 have decreased significantly across Africa. Furthermore, deaths are declining for the first time since the peak of the fourth Omicron-related COVID wave. Experts say the Omicron outbreak has spread and declined with unprecedented speed in parts of the continent, including in South Africa, where the variant was first identified. They say despite progress, the threat of COVID-19 is not over yet. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The coronavirus pandemic has infected nearly 10.5 million people in Africa and killed more than 234,000. World Health Organization officials say the latest figures reflect a 20% drop in coronavirus cases in the week up to January 16 and an 8% dip in deaths. While the fourth Omicron-fueled wave appears to have peaked, WHO Regional Director for Africa, Machidiso Moiti, says the continent is not yet out of the pandemic woods. She says further monitoring is needed to determine whether the trend will be sustained. However, while four subregions reported a fall in new cases, we're closely monitoring the situation in North Africa, where cases spiked by 55%, and Tunisia and Morocco have both seen an exponential increase overtaking South Africa as the countries with the most cases on the continent. The highly transmissible Omicron variant triggered a sharp surge in the number of cases, but the severity of disease appears to be milder than that of previous strains. Nevertheless, Moeti says the continent has not yet turned the tide on the pandemic. She says there is no room for complacency. She warns further pandemic waves are inevitable as long as the virus continues to circulate. She notes Africa remains particularly vulnerable because of its unequal access to life-saving vaccines. She says Africa faces similar impediments in gaining access to a full range of COVID-19 treatments. The WHO has approved 11 therapeutics that can be used to treat COVID-19. It currently is reviewing the data on two oral antivirals, which have shown promising results in reducing the risk of hospitalization in some patients. WHO Regional Director Moiti says she fears Africa once again may lose out in gaining access to those treatments because of their limited availability and high cost. For example, she notes two effective antibody treatments cost between $550 and $1,220 for a single dose. The deep inequity that left Africa at the back of the queue for vaccines must not be repeated with life-saving treatments. Universal access to diagnostics, vaccines and therapeutics will pave the shortest path to the end of this pandemic. Moiti warns nations to prepare for the appearance of other transmissible, possibly more virulent strains of the coronavirus. She says the coronavirus will continue to mutate and pose an ongoing threat to nations if the inequitable distribution of life-saving vaccines and therapeutics between rich and poor countries is maintained. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. For more insights, I spoke with Dr. Nonso Ejofor, team leader for health operations in the WHO Regional Office for Africa. Take a listen. Dr. Nonso Ejofor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Lina. 
The World Health Organization uh, reported uh, recently that the numbers of COVID-19 cases are decreasing in Africa. Would you explain to us how this translates on the ground in terms of numbers? What are we seeing? The report shared last week is suggesting uh, what uh, may be uh, heading towards the end of the fourth wave. Uh, what we are observing is that the curve uh, the peak of the, the, the fourth wave. In the last uh, two weeks, we have had uh, a steady decline in the number of uh, cases. And so it's suggestive of what uh, we may call a decline or a, a descent of, of, of the fourth wave. Of course, you are aware that the fourth wave is largely fueled by the Omicron variant of COVID-19. And so this is what we are witnessing and we think it's, uh, it's an encouraging trend. Very encouraging indeed. Uh, so to what do you attribute the decrease of the cases on the continent? It's a number of factors. Uh, to start with, I must acknowledge that uh, the data we are gathering is suggestive of the fact that uh, while the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 may be very highly transmissible uh, in terms of affectation from one person, or spread from one person to the other, uh, clinically we have seen relatively less severe uh, manifestations, and that has uh, accounted for the um, comparatively lower deaths or fatalities that we have seen in, in, the, in the fourth wave. Where are we seeing uh, the reduction? Is it country-specific or region-specific? Is it random? The observations are across the region. And like I indicated before, yes, there is the aspect of low fatalities or less severe impacts being uh, observed from Omicron-related cases. But then, of course, there are a number of other factors. We cannot uh, discount as the fact that the vaccination of the vulnerable population, which otherwise would have resulted or where, like death, made progress in that area. We've also made progress in the investment that we have made in terms of uh, strengthening case management capacity. We understand this disease better and we are better able to care for them. We have also done some work in terms of pre-positioning the necessary resources that we require to care for patients with COVID-19. And I think all of these factors contribute to the trend that we are seeing, not just in one country, but spread across the region. So how do we maintain this trend? While it is, it is a bit difficult to predict with a large precision, the direction in terms of what we will see in future, WHO is exploring uh, what we call a repositioning of our strategy. We will be launching what we call the CARE strategy. CARE is an acronym, C-A-R-E. And CARE actually stands for Confirm, Assess, Respond, and Evaluate. So we are focusing on a strategy that identifies and confirms cases of uh, COVID-19, have a thorough clinical assessment of those cases in terms of uh, the clinical manifestations, the vulnerabilities. Of course, you know that uh, patients with comorbidities are most vulnerable and are most at risk of severe uh, you know, manifestation of disease. Uh, we are also looking at responding. Following this assessment, you want to provide the appropriate treatment, identify the patient. So you want to give the right patient the right medication, the right time, and in the right dose. And along the line of all of doing this, uh, you have also to evaluate uh, 
the clinical outcomes that you are seeing in patients. So, Dr. Jofor, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, how we were able to get through that so far better than was predicted? If you are referring to what we experienced as a trend vis-a-vis uh, -vis the earlier predictions that we have made, uh, my response will be, I think that quite a good number of those predictions did not take into full account the cultural contexts and the comparative advantage the Africa and by extension uh, African health workforce and other frontline professionals who have contributed to the response to the pandemic, the relative capacities. And, and I also find that most of those predictions were made for Africa by non-Africans. So there are also comparative studies that actually uh, envisaged uh, something that is not so far from what we eventually witness as outcomes. What do you say is the threat of a new variant when it comes to fighting this pandemic? Because so far we've seen so many variants emerge. I will say that it is typical of viruses to mutate as they move from one person to another. The experience of the past two years would have told you uh, that uh, there is a bit of a limitation in terms of the control of the spread of the virus itself. And therefore, the threat of emergence of new variants is real. What we cannot tell, however, uh, is the clinical behavior or what the characteristics of the new uh, variants are likely to be. We saw in Delta, the, the third wave fell by Delta, where we had high mortalities, uh, uh, you know, complementing the, the surge in cases. And we have seen recently in Omicron where there is high transmissibility, but then uh, less severity in terms of disease outcome. Because we cannot predict this, it is then important for us to focus on our measures, the public health measures that we have put in place, focus on cascading this key information to the countries at subnational levels, at community levels, while also strengthening our capacity to manage cases in the events that we have uh, a, a surge. Other things or other measures or actions to be taken, I believe, will be a function of uh, what we find manifesting in the event that there are new variants. Right now, the Africa Cup of Nations is ongoing in Cameroon. As a public health specialist, what are your recommendations? What would the WHO say in terms of uh, keeping people safe? The African Cup of Nations is a mass gathering event, as you know. We are also aware that preparatory to this tournament, uh, there were consultation, there were deployments of experts who had to make an assessment of the measures that have been put in place to ensure that this does not turn out to be a super spreader event. Uh, and so long as those uh, recommendations have been fully complied with, I think that the chances that there will be a surge following the tournament is quite low. But also uh, another opportunity I see is the opportunity to take advantage of a tournament like this that enjoys the viewership of multitudes of or millions of people across Africa to disseminate key messages that we want to permeate the, the population, to let people know. Uh, it's a good thing. I find it interesting that they, there is demand for the correct information. There is more than ever before. Uh, Africans want to know, what do I need to keep safe? What do I need that, what do I do that puts me at risk? So I think that we can leverage the opportunity that the African Cup of Nations provides to also drive these messages.
And finally, Dr. John Foro, what are your thoughts in terms of lessons learned and uh, moving forward? Well, I think that the most important lesson learned is that uh, we do not have control over the mutation of these viruses. We do not have control over the behavior of the viruses, but we have control over our behavior. We have control over how we can approach it, over how we can shape our living in a way that does not pose a health threat to either ourselves or those around us. And so I think that the message I'd like to leave here will be for us to continue to take those measures that are recommended by governments of member states, by public health experts across board, take them seriously. The fact that Omicron has not manifested um, severity in terms of clinical outcomes is not a guarantee that if there is another variant and there is likely to be, that it will be the same as Omicron. And so for me, to Africans, it will be that um, it's not over yet. We've made some tremendous progress, but I, I, I know that a, a lot of work still needs to be done. Dr. Nonso Ejofo, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Leonard. That was Dr. Nonso Ejofo, team leader for health operations in the WHO Regional Office for Africa. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It is time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Oh. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists. Win prizes and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London, Twitter at Border Crossings, or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA. Or call 202-619-2077 and have your favorite music played to the entire world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal, only on The Voice of America. Welcome back to Health Chat. A South African study has found the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is less severe than previous ones, even for the unvaccinated. The country's top scientists say this could be good news for bringing an end to the pandemic as the highly contagious variant also spreads resistance. Linda Givetesh reports from Johannesburg. South Africans no longer have to race to get home before midnight. A curfew imposed at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic was finally scrapped ahead of New Year's Eve. Now, Dr. Marianne Davies, a professor of epidemiology at the University of Cape Town, says there's more good news about the latest coronavirus variant, Omicron we see about a 25% lowering of the risk of death. So about 1.3 times uh, lower risk of death. And so that makes us think that residual effect, that 25% reduction could be the true effect due to lower virulence of the the Omicron compared to previous variants. That reduction is compared to the previous Delta variant, which was more severe than the original virus. The study, which is yet to be peer-reviewed, found Omicron to be similar in severity to the first wave. Davy says a major difference now is that prior infections and vaccinations help reduce hospitalizations and deaths. 
While Omicron evaded vaccines and reinfected people, Dr. Shabir Madi, a professor of vaccinology at the University of the Witwatersrand, says that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's going to boost immune responses in people, people that were previously infected. It's going to boost immune responses in people that have been vaccinated. And it will also uh, do further, uh, result in further immunity in people that haven't been previously infected or vaccinated up until now. The data is quite compelling. Uh, that people that have this hybrid immunity are vaccine together with infection. In fact, they probably got a better immune response. Scientists emphasize getting the virus is no substitute for a vaccine. Death rates remain highest among people who aren't inoculated. Official government figures say over 93,000 lives have been lost. Davies says getting sick has other consequences. But even a mild variant can cause a lot of chaos for a health service um, for a number of reasons. The one is with these very high transmission rates. Um, you get a lot of people infected at any one time, and that includes healthcare workers. And so that means that you've got a lot of people who are off work and um, often their contacts needing to be quarantined, and that can have huge impacts. Still, the promise of less stringent protocols is welcome to businesses hurting from nearly two years of curfews and lockdowns. Alex Zabo is the owner of the Antisocial Club, a bar and restaurant in Johannesburg. There was a big conversational point on the 28th of December where do we stay closed or do we reopen? And the reason we reopened was these extra three hours. We, we do believe that there has to be a brighter day coming. Whether increased immunity amid fewer restrictions will be enough to ward off the worst effects of the coronavirus will be tested by future variants. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Now to China. Beijing has been exporting traditional Chinese medicine around the world, including to Africa. With claims of helping with the COVID-19 pandemic, these herbal medicines are welcomed by some, while others raise concerns about their effectiveness and the lack of regulation. Victoria Amunga reports from Nairobi. My, my life now is not that productive. 85-year-old Heng Pal Singh is among dozens of patients with daily appointments at the Oriental Chinese Herbal Clinic in Nairobi. Singh has been suffering from spinal problems for five years and is now trying out this clinic for treatment. There is a slight difference. As I was telling him that it's only a week now, he says he'll take at least maybe another at least 12 to 15 sessions and then we see how it goes. Traditional Chinese medicine, or TMC, is becoming more popular in Africa. According to a 2020 study by Development Reimagined, a Beijing-based international consultancy firm. A February 2020 op-ed written by a Beijing think tank researcher and published in state media China Daily said such traditional medicine will boost the Chinese economy, contribute to global health and prove to be a shot in the arm for China's soft power. But conventional medical doctors say patients are overlooking the potential harm that some herbal remedies can cause, especially if used too frequently or too high a dosage. They do work uh, in uh, quite a number of circumstances. Now, uh, having said that, uh, our main worry as uh, the, you know, the, the practitioners, uh, the medical practitioners, is that uh, you know, the use of herbal medicine is not as regulated as uh, we would want it to be. This is Chinese ginseng. Although the safety and effectiveness of the traditional Chinese medicine is still debated worldwide, herbal practitioners like Li Shuang continue to gain popularity among those seeking alternative medication.
Lee claims some of his patients are benefiting from purported COVID-19 remedies, although there's a scant scientific evidence that they can help against the disease. Many people buy herbal to prevent COVID-19. Result good. Environmentalists fear the growth of traditional Chinese medicine will encourage poachers to go after endangered wildlife like rhinos and some species of snakes used in making the potions. And the rhino in Kenya is actually one of the good examples. With people saying that uh, the rhino horn may actually help in improving uh, to, as an, to be used as an aphrodisiac, this has led to almost complete annihilation of the, of the rhino species in Kenya and in Africa in general. Kenya spends an estimated $2.7 billion each year on health care, according to national statistics. Some economists say herbal medicine can significantly lower the cost of medical expenses in the continent if proven effective. Africans spend quite a bit of money traveling to countries like as, such as India, uh, the UAE, to get treatment. So if this can provide more natural, uh, more cost-effective health care, because cost-effectiveness uh, is a big uh, reason of why people choose different types of health care. In 2021, Kenya's national drug regulator, the Pharmacy and Poisons Board, approved the sale of Chinese herbal health products in the country. Practitioners like Lee hope that more nations will approve Chinese herbal medicine in the future. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. In Nigeria's oil-producing regions, authorities are blaming illegal oil refiners for the air pollution caused by thick black soot, which often leads to respiratory problems. Authorities this month launched a manhunt on them, but locals point to the finger back at authorities for not making fuel cheap enough and for burning seized shipments of smuggled oil. Timothy Obizu reports from Port Harcourt, Nigeria. A state security patrol is tipped off about an oil theft site somewhere in the bush. After a bumpy one-hour ride, the oil bunkering site is found and a suspect is arrested. I started working here three months ago. When the police people came, the others ran away, but I have no money with me to go back home. I was trying to raise some money. This is Obodo a local community in Nigeria's southern river state. Authorities say they have found many sites where oil is stolen and stored, a practice called oil bunkering in Nigeria. Authorities also have begun cracking down on illegal oil refining operations known locally as O-Fire. It's a local process where crude oil is burned to extract petroleum, causing residue to be released in the form of thick black suit. Officials say O-Fire is rampant here. This base was found ransacked and abandoned by the time officials arrived. This tank right here is full of crude oil. Illegal refinery operators abandoned it during a raid days ago and authorities say that the land degradation caused by this one tank alone could take up to 75 years to redeem. For years, River State has been ranked as having some of the most polluted air in Africa. Authorities say they intend to keep pressure on the illegal operations. We are aware that the criminals are making their plots and plan to do whatever we do. We are not perturbed. We are equal to the task. It's a war. We have told them, we know them, we have their names. Their names have been, they've been declared wanted. 
State Governor Nyesomwike has declared 19 major illegal operators wanted and pledged to reward whistleblowers with $5,000 cash. Nigerian lawmakers have also called for an end to black suit pollution. But some locals say the illegal operators provide cheaper oil products. Kerosene dealer Sosa Gold says the crackdown on illegal refineries is threatening her business. What do you know one stop and be safe? And they get small, small gain. So you see, I don't get husband, I don't get any help. So, dear, when I go buy, I will get small thing. What I go use, cut out with my, I get three children, cut out with my children. Meanwhile, Nigeria is struggling to reopen refineries shut down for more than a year to undergo rehabilitation and improve their capacities. Critics say systemic government corruption is affecting progress and Nigeria continues to rely on imports to meet the country's energy needs. Meanwhile, authorities say those who steal oil and illegally refine it will be charged and face jail time if convicted. Timothy Obiezu from Fioe News, Port Harcourt, River State, Nigeria. Kenya's environmental activists are welcoming U.S. support for a global pact to combat plastic pollution in the oceans. Meanwhile, a community-based initiative is doing its part by collecting and recycling plastic washed up on Kenya's beaches where people depend on tourism to make a living. Juma Majanga reports from Watamu, Kenya. There are mountains of plastic waste on Kenya's beaches in Watamu visible evidence of ocean plastic pollution. So twice a week, the project coordinator at the Watamu Marine Association, Julie Myra, leads teams to pick up the bags and bottles and other items that wash up from the ocean. They collect an average of five tons of litter per week. It is sorted to be able to identify the items that can be recycled from it. And these such as plastic, glass, metals. For the metals, we sell them to the scrap dealers. And uh, for the plastic, we shred it, the hard plastic as well as the plastic water bottles. We shred those and we sell it. And the money that we get from such sales, we pour it back into the project to be able to fund, to fund us to do more beach cleanups. Plastic pollution is a huge problem affecting the marine environment. According to a report by the United Nations Environment Programme, an estimated 8 million tons of plastic is dumped into the oceans each year, 80% of it from uncollected land waste. The impact of this along Kenya's coastal areas like Watamu is critical because the region relies heavily on tourism for income, says Myra. If the tourists don't want to visit a dirty beach, that means that the livelihoods of those local community members has been threatened, as well as the business for the tourism industry. Visiting Nairobi recently ahead of the resume session of the 5th United Nations Environment Assembly, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced America's support for a new global agreement to combat ocean plastic pollution. Our goal is to create a tool that we can use to protect our oceans and all the life that they sustain from growing global harms of plastic pollution. It's crucial that the agreement call on countries to develop and enforce strong national action plans to address this problem at its source. Environmentalists have welcomed U.S. support and urged other big plastic producers like China to join the negotiations. Erastas Ooko 
is the spokesperson for plastics at Greenpeace Africa. The U.S. is uh, one of the biggest polluters and uh, also producers of plastic. And them coming on board on this, it shows uh, a sign of leadership and uh, them having not to lead just in terms of pollution and production, but also in terms of uh, joining in the solution is quite significant. And we will be following keenly to see how they can be able to also uh, cut off that type of uh, plastic production from their end so that we don't have more plastic into the environment. Uh, maybe we'll also see China getting to join in the same and other countries uh, getting to support these negotiations. In the meantime, Myra and her group at the Watamu Marine Association will continue picking up trash, fighting the battle to keep Kenya's beaches clean. Juma Majanga for VA News, Watamu, Kenya. That's all for this edition of Health Chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying Health Chat. I'm your host, Linoch Mudu in Washington with producer Dan Brown. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and strive to make every day a healthy day. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Coming up, a conversation with Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University's School of Law. We'll talk with him about the significance of passing federal voting rights legislation despite a recent failed attempt to do so. The fight for voting rights in America. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Stay informed and up to date Monday through Friday at 3.30 and 17.05 UTC with VOA's International Edition. Our correspondents bring you the news from around the globe. Plus, we delve into the context of the day's biggest stories with interviews with experts that place the story into context to understand why it matters. VOA's International Edition, your best source for news and information.